I think the choices are binary. So I think even though you have five responses, six, whatever, the choice is binary. It's good, evil, anti-racist, racist. So and a lot of people disagree with me. So I've already gotten like comments like uh, disagreeing with that whole form. But and I'm not judging. So here's the caveat, too. I'm not judging or um, applying value to your journeys. I'm just sharing my observations. And so this is not a this is not a exhibit A in the courtroom at your individual hearing. This is me at the reading, writing, observing, educating myself patterns that I've seen. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun, and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. AP, 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 we are back. It is episode eight. Actually, it's not just episode eight. It's a very, very special episode, and we are going to unpack race in this one. Are you ready to do that again? Are we ready for this conversation? I think I am, but let's see an hour from now how I feel. Let's go. All right. So tonight, let's unpack race in the workplace, in our churches, and even in our schools. I don't want to overlook this opportunity with you and all of the special moments that you've had in the last several months to really speak um, on not only your experiences, but others' experiences, um, to kind of share some insights, not only from the workplace, but also from your church. Um, So I want to unpack some of that. But I want to get us started tonight by asking you a, a question. When was the earliest memory that you have of experienced racism, and can you Tell me a little bit about that. Wow. You know, I think growing up, the first memory I can really grasp, right, of actual racism to me or to my family was probably in church, actually. Um, When we relocated from Amarillo, Texas to uh, the Fort Worth, Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, you know, I think we were a family of seven at that time, black family, rolling around in our beat-up station wagon. Uh, We visited several churches to see where we would place membership. And I remember going at that time. So I was at, I was seven or eight years old and we visited a, uh, actual, a large popular, uh, predominantly white church congregation in this area. And the way we were looked at and treated, I remember was like a flag of like, Hey, you guys don't belong. Right. So I wasn't Mm -hmm. called the N word. Uh, There wasn't a whites only sign in the church, but I think I've grown to learn that most whites only signs are now just the invisible ones that are in our church rooms or boardrooms, the courtrooms and all those things. But probably the first time I can grasp a memory of a early like, hey, you're being treated differently. And it's not because of something you did. It's because of something you're perceived as. And I remember I forgot about it. So recently my brother brought it up. Um maybe a couple months ago. And I was like, oh yeah, that that did happen. I think oftentimes, especially growing up as an African-American in uh, America, white supremacy is just a part of how we operate, whether it's learned or acknowledged or it's invisible to us at times. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of just roll with it. You don't, you don't think about a lot of it until 
some of these things happen and then reflexively the memories of pain or the memories of wounds or mistreatment come up and oftentimes mm-hmm. we don't we don't know how to deal with it because we haven't been taught how to deal with it we've been taught how to get over it yeah when you use the word white supremacy do you see people like back up buck up do you see them like shut down like what happens when you use that word especially at work white supremacy um is a very triggering word for a I'd say a majority of white people, even people of color or black people. Um, it's not a word that you would typically use in a corporate setting. I've used it more on work calls and videos and interviews on behalf of my company in the past month than probably ever before in my life. And so, uh, but what I learned though, I was I had a, uh, a call with a diversity expert, this lady named Susan X. Jane. She's amazing. And I think her challenge to me and my team was this, white supremacy exists because we're all too fearful to call it out. And when you don't name it, it gives it power. So we have to keep challenging and confronting the term white supremacy. So I say it all the time now. I say it on videos. I say it in interviews. I say it with people. And and it's not to be aggressive. It's not to be um, a bully. It's actually to just name it. Right. And so we give racism and systemic and structural racism a point of origin. Right. And so, you know, that white supremacy permeates so many areas of our culture, of our heritage, of our history. And so it's so intertwined into our democracy that you you have to name that. And when you name it, you can at least deal with it. So, yeah, but it's a very triggering word that I've gotten responses from Christian and non-Christian alike that. Like just the fact of naming it makes me racist. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it, yeah. But you, you know, think about it. Black Lives Matter three years ago, four years ago, like that was a, a triggering political statement that no one felt comfortable saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people saying Black Lives Matter now would have never tweeted it or posted it mm-hmm. just maybe two years ago. And so I think we, we got to start to change the narrative and be more, I think, true to the, to the real history of our country. Yeah, that's good. All right, so when you were seven or eight, you go to this church that's predominantly white, and you're treated differently, and you have a, a memory of that. Fast forward to last year, you're at Harvard, and I want you to unpack your experience at Harvard. Yeah, so I was at Harvard University, Harvard Business School, uh, finishing up. It was an 18-month course, executive education and uh, management and leadership I took uh, with my job. And it was the basically the last week of courses and classwork. We were about to graduate. And so I was uh, grabbing some oatmeal, right, in the you know Harvard Business School. I have a special cafeteria just for the business school and uh, executives, right? So it's all, you know... You know, management executives from all across the world having breakfast together. So these aren't college kids in the cafeteria. No, by far. Yeah, these are these are all executives. These are business owners, CEOs, CMOs, upper level. Even for our company, you know, you're all pretty much vice president and, and up in the company. Um, so you know, it's a group of maybe you know, probably a hundred to two hundred people at any given time are having some sort of meal in this executive kind of dining hall. I was grabbing oatmeal right before. The first class of the day and I remember this lady just coming up to me like quick and like assertive and that questioning me hey what who are you with it's like huh like what program are you with like questioning like if I was supposed to be there it it, it wasn't a 
it wasn't a um, ambiguous like hey no it was a who are you with like what program are you with I was like well I'm with Bacardi I'm here for school well you you're a student here like yeah yeah I'm, I'm studying here she, she said well you don't are you sure like she she's she questioning my you know my um space and I remember her clearly saying this because I asked her hey well why are you questioning me well and I asked, why didn't you ask the other executives for their ID? Because I had to show her, like, I, I had to prove that I, I belong there. Oh, snap. I said, so you why? had to pull out your ID to show her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to pull out, you know, it was like a little card or a, a lanyard to say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of a program. My name is Adrian. I am here, right? Um, so I asked her, why didn't you ask the other executives for their ID? She told me this. She said, well, you don't even look like one. I said, whoa, what makes you think that I don't look like an executive? And she just looks at me. And she didn't back down. Like, this was the scary thing. This lady was so certain that I did not belong in that cafeteria and just looked at me. was like, well, and she's looked at me like, but she wouldn't say it's because you're black. And I remember if you look across the room, right, all the people in our classes, I'm like one of two black people in a room full of probably 200 people, right? So it's like, I remember being so frustrated, offended, of course, but I remember my response was to go back to her and confront her because I didn't want that to go um, to go unrelented. I, I think it had to be addressed. And it's something that has happened. It happens all the time. Like, you know, you're in a store, mm-hmm. you're in a place. I'm getting asked about your... Um, appropriateness of being in a white space is a normal thing for black people. So, like, w- we know, we know the math. We know when that that question is coming. Who are you? You do you belong here? What's your name? What's your title? Are you in the wrong line? I mean, that happens all the time. But uh, yeah, it was it was surprising to happen at Harvard because it, it's a campus that embodies and they they celebrate all these diversity efforts and they have them on their walls like. All you know the code of ethics, and so to be treated like that um, among my peers at work was was a uh, was a little surprising. Yeah, this lady confronts you as though you don't belong in this space, and what you read is is because I'm black, right? Now, if I had walked into that same room dressed the exact same way, I too trend younger. Like if you were to look at me, you, you don't think that I'm 40 years old, right? But I can promise you that nobody would have asked me, did I belong in that room? Oh, not, not even. She would have helped you find maybe some sugar or honey for your oatmeal, right? Like, which is, she's a cafeteria worker, right? So it's like, hey, I, I mean, you know, for her first question not to be, hey, can I help you? I mean, even if you did, like, question whether I belong there, she was so assertive with it. And she doubled down, right? Like, you don't look like you belong here. You don't look like the other executives. Uh, so I remember I did a couple of things. One was I pulled her aside and we had a conversation. I told her how offensive and hurtful that is and how she should never treat someone that way. And I would expect her to not do that again. And she apologized. But I deliberately did that away from her coworkers and her boss. Because for me, it wasn't about retaliation. It was about correction. And because, I don't know, call it 15, 20 years from now, Caleb's walking through that same cafeteria I don't want him to be treated the same way. Um, but it, for me, it wasn't about retribution. I remember I shared that story uh, with, with my team, not for, you know, me, I mean, I'm 
I'd rather talk about how smart of a marketer I am or my point of view on the future of work. Like there are tens of thousands of things I would rather be known for than, hey, I'm the black executive that just got racially profiled getting older. <laughs> like that that was not like, that was not on my list of Harvard Business School achievements for this executive program. But I shared it because I knew that it needed to be uh, dealt with, but it needed to be socialized. And so I remember the response I got from the professors and the staff there who were very like apologetic, who actually wanted retribution. So they were like, we want another name. Like, and I could tell they were mm-hmm. like, give us the name and it's done. Mm-hmm. Like, she is gone. Yeah. And I, I didn't tell. I didn't. I didn't think she should get fired. I think she should be educated. Uh, she's ignorant. Right. Um, but then I told my classmates, it's like 60 executives, they uh, they shared the story. And they talked about it. I remember one of uh, the classmates and a lot of the people are from outside the United States. So for them, racism has very different implications because uh, especially anti-black racism in the United States is a very different brand of racism from, from other countries. I remember one guy questioned like, you know, it's unfortunate that it happened, but I guess I was wondering, should you have talked about it? Like, should you have shared that story? I said, yeah, I, I, I shared it because it happens and I want you guys to know there's still the reality and it's still a part of the conversation. So I didn't share it for pity. I didn't share it for kudos. I didn't share it, you know, for it it, it. it wasn't about me, but I wanted them to know that that still exists and it still happens on a on a very frequent basis um, as well. And so it opened up a larger conversation I could have with my teammates and my peers in corporate America about how I'm treated. And of course, you know, you fast forward a few months later today. And now conversations like that are more relevant than ever. Well, I think I want to add two things to that. Number one is that there's a a growth moment for you there where 20 years ago, like we talked about last week, you would have blasted off an email, copied the CEO, and somebody would have got fired, (laughs) right? Oh, easy. Oh, yeah, she'd be done. Yeah. She'd be done. But yeah. today, your main concern was is like, hey, I, I want you to grow. So I would say that that is huge growth on your part, right? As we look back, like, man, that's awesome. The second thing is, is that if you're listening to this podcast and you are about to turn us off because you're you're tired of hearing the word racism, you're tired of hearing the word white supremacy, you're saying, APDC, why are you guys still talking about this? If you'd stop talking about this, it would just go away. That is incorrect. Like, and so I think back to your point about why you brought it up in your classes, because once we give anything a name, once we call something out, once we bring it into the light, right, out of the dark, we bring it into the light, it loses its power. And so I think the same is true in this moment in our, in our history, hopefully, right? The more that we bring this out of the dark, which, you know, we're doing, the more that it's in the light and all of a sudden people start to see it very differently. And, and our hope is, is that again, we become these ministers of reconciliation. We're not in it to get people fired. Yeah. I think the biggest risk, especially to the current climate is that we get, uh, you know, racism fatigue or woke. We're all post woke. We're like, Oh, I've checked the box. I now know about racism and white supremacy. Uh, I can move on to the next task. And when you talk about like, being ministers of reconciliation, for me, you know, it's both words. It's minister, which comes from the same word as minus. Like, I'm less. So minister is a person that puts others ahead of them. I become less. I serve. I attend. I take care of. I think we all are called to that that service. So what I did for her or with her, that was a service, right? That was a, hey, this 
this uh, bias and bigotry that you have affects people. It hurt me. And, mm-hmm. and it's even vulnerable to tell someone, tell another human being you don't know that, hey, that was offensive and that hurt. Like, yeah. I'm. Do you think I want to tell the yeah. cafeteria lady worker that, hey, that hurt and that was offensive? Yeah. But I did that because I, I think I have an obligation to be that minister, meaning I'm serving her by pointing out how her actions affect other people. But the reconciliation yeah. is also that degree of because I'm a, you know, I think as reconcilers, we've been reconciled to God. And now we I reflect that reconciliation. Right. Mm-hmm. So the same grace that I've been given by God. I now have responsibility to give it to other people. And so that's why the email, the getting her fired, to me at that time wasn't the right um, reaction because I think it was an opportunity to show grace and to hopefully make her an advocate so then now she knows, hey, next time there happens to be a black guy walking around getting his oatmeal, maybe ask him if he needs help versus assuming that he doesn't belong there. Yeah, that's so good. All right, so you, you shared this story in those classrooms, you also came back and you kind of shared the story on social media and in some of your peer groups. And I know you got some feedback and it wasn't all supportive. Um, and I think that feedback has been kind of trickling in over the last several months, more and more and more. And so you took the time to put together these infographics, which I was hoping you could unpack for us a little bit tonight. But I think really that that moment that you came back from Harvard and you shared that story and you saw that even members of your own church weren't fully on board to support you um, as a black man, right, in that space, sharing a story that you know, like you said, you, you were really vulnerable and you didn't even receive support from them. Fast forwarding all the way to today, you've really collected a lot of good insight, understanding, um, a lot of personal feedback. So if you don't mind, like, will you start to unpack that a little bit for us and then maybe dive into these infographics and kind of the the quadrants that you've, you've set up there? Yeah, it's been such a journey of um, self-examination. Not only of examining my own history, my own complacency and being conditioned to thrive in a world of white supremacy, but also uh, feeling an obligation to help confront the same conditions that I've, you know, arguably learned to, to just deal with. So when I came back, you know, and I, I shared that story, like I said, my rationale and my motive for sharing that story was to give voice to it, uh, to, to give a, uh, a name, to per- personify it. So the people who know me, Right. will know that this happened to me and I'm not special, but I'm unique and I'm unique in the fact that I'm Adrian. And because you know me, um, it gives a voice to the racism or the bigotry that sometimes feels so removed. Yeah. I remember sharing that story and overwhelmingly, like, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, that's wrong and et cetera. And I, like I said, I didn't share it for their uh, approval or their pity, but I did share it to give voice. And I think a lot of people were overwhelmingly positive. But I remember a member of... Um, my church, right? A, a, a church member, a fellow brother in Christ uh, calling me out saying, hey, like it's being so divisive to call it racism. Racism is a myth. It's in your head. Like I've been wow. asked for an ID. You don't know that it was because you're black. You don't know she was judging you. I, well, I, And I told him, oh, I asked her, right? Like, hey, why did you not ask other people? And she said, it's because you don't look like an executive. Right. And and I remember um, this this gentleman doubling down on his stance. Right. That no racism in your head. And then, of course, you know, right after that, it's going to go political. So it's, you know, 
the Democrats are doing this, mm-hmm. and you know, and then it, and then it's you know, it's like the bingo card of what to say to a black guy. Is you people need to, and mm-hmm. so he, his suggestions or solutions on what black people need to do to fit in better in in our country. And I remember the people that responded to him because I think I, I posted the story. I responded once, and I'm, I might have went to bed. So then I woke up. And the wall is just full of like back and forth responses, you know. So this this thread had gone on overnight for maybe, you know, ten to fifteen different responses. The people that responded to him and confronted him virtually, uh, it was a uh, Muslim uh, former coworker, a a black uh, brother who's an atheist, uh, a white um, Christian who I used to work with, so not a member of my church. Um, my executive assistant from my current role, right? And so all these people were like, God, like, no. Like, and it was like touching because these people are like fighting for me like on social media. And I remember not one person from my like current, you know, church community responded to their brother, right? So this, wow. you know, we're in the same church. Um, not one person responded to him uh, directly on my wall. And so I don't take it personal meaning is Facebook a proxy for real life? No, it's a social post. So I don't put yeah. too much, um, too much, uh, you know, I think burden on that being representative of like the reality of it. But the reality of that situation was that that same week though, so many people from my church would come to me and say, Hey, yeah, that was crazy. You know, like, man, he shouldn't have said that. And and so one on one, they would like comfort me, and they would say, "Yeah, yeah. you know, he's he's a big Trump supporter, or you know, whatever." And like I said, I, I, I went the political post; it was my my experience, and it and that started this kind of observational journey for me, where I started to notice trends in how predominantly um, white Americans respond to confronting racism. I started to notice they weren't comfortable confronting him or the person who would have been, you know, racist or at least, you know, apathetic to my pain. Um, but they were very much more comfortable confirming me in private, right? And I started to get this concept of like, wow, like they're 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 yeah. silent. They sit in that middle seat, right? They're realists. Like, yeah, Adrian, it's okay. You hey, I love you. You're my brother. But would not confront. And then fast forward a few months later, you know, where we are today. Yeah. I've had conversations with CEOs. I've had conversations with pastors and preachers and ministers. I've had conversations with activists. I've had conversations with Muslims. I've had conversations with people who are atheists or agnostic. I have conversations with students and interns. I've been talking, right, for the past <laughs> probably two months. Yeah. And I started to notice these trends and how people respond to racism. To me privately in my messages or emails or my blog posts. Or to me directly, uh, publicly, in, 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 in their voices or interviews or just one-on-one calls. And I, I came to this realization that there's, there's a trend. There's this predictable personas, right? And the two driving factors are, you know, your uh, EQ, your emotional intelligence, and your racial awareness. And so I started to realize I could pretty much predict your response Based on those two things. So your EQ, your emotional intelligence is this your capacity to feel what another person is feeling. Mm-hmm. So a person with a high EQ is empathetic, right? They, they can feel other people's burdens, pains, etc. Low EQ is very not aware, you know, very biased, etc. Mm-hmm. Racial awareness, right, is your racial literacy. Like how aware are you are you of systemic 
racism? How aware of you of white supremacy? Like, do you have a knowledge of the true history of our country, the origins of, of America, civil rights, Jim Crow, et cetera, <laughs> the value gap for black Americans? And I could see that these five personas really did hop up and I could kind of like label them. And so it became kind of this weird uh, journey of being able to, based on someone's response, I could pretty much guess and they were pretty predictable. And so even to this, to this, this week, I, you know, I get them every couple of days, somebody's responding to me or I see a post about something I wrote um, and I could see these responses starting to come to life. And so that's where the, you know, this kind of, you know, racial empathy map, came from where, you know, I, I explored those five personas of the rejector, the referee, the resistor, the realist, and of course the anti-racist. All right. So let's go over those real quick. Let's so go. We'll, we'll post this graphic to the unfollow Instagram. Uh, but let's, let's remind folks what we, what you've put together, the rejector, the referee, the resistor, the anti-racist, and the realist. And if you could kind of walk us through each one of those and, and kind of some info about them. Yeah. So I start with the rejector because I'd say the gentleman who um, confronted me when I shared the post about my experience at Harvard totally denied that racism existed. So to it's him, a myth, right? yeah, he it, believes it's a myth. Racism is a conspiracy theory. Um, so he has low racial awareness, right? So no acknowledgement or concern or consideration for uh, bigotry, bias, anything, slavery, like all of it. Like, yeah, it's it's in the past. It's all gone. So not only is racism a myth, his pushback is like by talking about it, you're being divisive. And so he sees himself as a good American. He sees himself as hey, I'm supporting this country. We all have a duty to this country as well. And I think, but when the rejector talks about the country in America, they're not talking about the country of all of us, inclusive diversity, land of the free, home of the brave. They're really talking about a white country, a country made for, you know, white male property owners, which is how the country was founded to, you know, benefit white male property owners. And so, he really wanted to defend the status quo. So the rejector just thinks black people should comply. Like, do not talk about racism. This country is working for me. Oftentimes, um, I've, I run into rejectors, uh, you know, so when I travel, if I'm flying business, uh, you know, sometimes I'll sit in business class or first class on a flight. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting next to somebody who starts up a conversation and they're talking about their business and they're successful and then it turns to politics and then... I don't know. I have no idea why people assume that I'm like a raging, uh, I don't know, Trump supporter or Republican or even a rejector because it always goes to, you know what? I don't they and always goes to like race, like racism doesn't really exist because like people are doing well. When I travel, all I know is people that are doing well. They have great businesses. And so wait, 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 people, people talk to you about this on a plane. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this happens. This happens. I think there's this. Thing, here's my guess. This is my uh, focus group of one. My hypothesis is that because I'm a business traveler uh-huh. and if we're talking about work, that pre-qualifies me to perhaps have a shared value system, a worldview uh-huh. in how we view business and culture and, and our country. Mm-hmm. And that those things mean, hey, maybe I'm a, a, you know, a capitalist that's all about building wealth and 
I'm enlightened enough to know that racism is a myth. And I think oftentimes, and then the rejector and the resistor, when they talk to me, oftentimes my perception of being successful, hey, you're an executive, you know, you went to this Harvard uh, executive education program, where you live, what you do, there's a almost, there's this, they use me as an example of racism not being real. Because if gotcha. this black guy is sitting next to me, racism can't exist, right? Gotcha. And so the, the rejector is motivated by power and that, and it's just denial. Like, it, so I, I don't spend time arguing with rejectors. Once I know, and it's funny, the, the real origins of this uh, personas and these infographics was really more selfish for me to say, where do I spend my time? I'm not going to argue with rejectors. Like, there, there's no point. Um, you can talk to a rejector. Um, somebody else can talk to one, but me as a black male, it, it, it doesn't do me any good to argue or get defensive with a rejector. And so a rejector would have not only a low EQ, but they would also have low social, low racial awareness, right? So social racial awareness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and real quick, before we move on from the rejector, they just believe that blacks should comply. Could you add to that? What does that mean in today's world, that blacks should just comply? Well, for so long, compliance was survival for black Americans. Mm. Uh, if you were caught reading in, during the slavery era, you, you could be killed. If you were caught mm-hmm. praying or worshiping God, you could be killed or flogged. If you were, I mean, literally, like I was property. I was three-fifths of a man in the Declaration of Independence, and that was only for the census. That was only for for uh, economic and governmental power. Like, we were considered cattle, uh, property. We were like farm tools, right? And so if you think about that heritage of white supremacy, the black body has always been something to uh, to manage, to, to profit from. And so I think that rejector mentality... Uh, still holds those same um, that same ethos, that same deformed sense of self. Where because that, so their measure of EQ, emotional awareness, is so low that mm-hmm. if something works for them, that's it. They are the center of their own universe. And so for me, the compliance comes where well, like just get in line because to them everything's working right. So you know, slavery worked well for a time. Uh, you know, Jim Crow worked for them for a time. America, you know, and segregation worked for them for a time. And yeah. so they're always pushing to defend the status quo. And so compliance is the tool they use to get everyone aligned. So oftentimes it's probably the same thing with women, probably the same thing with other areas of their life. But when it comes yeah. to black, white or racial relationships, compliance is the tool that I just don't want to hear about it. Just get in line, mm-hmm. obey, follow the follow the rules. Go to college, get a good job, and you'll be okay. Mm, for my benefit. Yes, for my benefit. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the other side of the quadrant, we have the resistor. Now, the resistor, you say, has low social awareness, but they have higher racial awareness. Yeah. So the, well, actually, the resistor would have low racial awareness, but higher emotional intelligence. And so okay. I have to qualify okay. that because I've had a couple of people ask me, well, the resistor, the resistor um, is emotional. So a resistor is the person that will flame you in social media. They will flood your comments and your DMs. Like they feel attacked. The resistor um, things that the resistor would call me a racist for talking about racism, but also the resistor denies white supremacy. But 
they care about other things, right? So whereas the rejector, like, cares about themselves and it's unashamedly like, it's about me. Mm-hmm. The resistor actually cares about other causes. And so they have higher EQ, so higher emotional intelligence. They have a higher capacity to feel for other people. So they, act, you know, they might go on mission trips. They might be philanthropic. They might do things for other people, but black people don't meet the criteria for support. So the resistor says, convince me that racism is worth my consideration, right? So they they have Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence for other causes, but because of their low racial awareness, so the low racial literacy, they, you know, don't acknowledge white supremacy. Racism is individual at best, meaning, oh, yeah, there's a racist person that does something, but racism is not systemic, like, and they always want proof, right? Well, prove to me, and I've gotten this, prove to me that systemic racism is real. Huh? Or prove to me that uh, America is racist. I'm like, and, you know, I, I could, it doesn't matter what I send. I can send a list to, like, all the stats, yeah. ve- verifiable, like, and they respond to me with, you know, Candace Owens' video or a link to some, like, obscure website that all the posts are these, or in this Morgan Freeman interview from a few years ago where uh, someone asked Morgan Freeman, does he believe there's a, a race problem? And Morgan Freeman says, no. And literally, like, it's, it's these two or three videos that circulate. And so the, the resistor um, is deadly because they're very vocal. They are offended that I talk about racism. They are absolutely offended. They are offended that I'm a Christian and I talk about racism. And so I've been told to repent. I've been told that, um, yeah, I've been told that my talking about racism is a sin. Um, They are, uh, they're fearful. Oftentimes it's a place of hurt. Like there's this loss there where I think they're they're gripping to an idea of themselves, whether they see themselves as a good Christian. And so to confront the idea that, hey, like there's something wrong, the word racism to them is almost like being called I mean, the worst thing ever versus acknowledging, hey, you can be biased or you can have some things you can have. um, You can have you can be racist and still be like and still be a productive person in society. You just have views that you inherited or that you never examined. And so and so they they, they just don't accept that racism could touch them. And so the the resistor um, isn't always religious, but they are very vocal. Religious resistors are all about theological debates. I mean, I get the most cryptic scriptural references. I don't even understand them. I, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent guy, grew up in the church. I read my Bible regularly. I don't have a master of divinity, but I don't even understand their responses because they piece together scriptures and I get all these responses that are, hey, here's the theology of why you shouldn't talk about racism. But if I ask you, hey, what have you done in the past week to help somebody that doesn't look like you? Nothing. Right. And so they're so busy defending themselves that they can't imagine how they can help someone else. Uh, Last thing on the resistor, you know that they're motivated by fear. And I think that this is the thing that has stuck out to me the most um, in the last several months as we've watched people respond to the protests, people respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it, it really comes down to the fact that they will not admit that they're scared. 
right? Like fear is a, fear is a real thing. Fear is a real motivator. Like we all experience fear, but the behavior that I'm seeing out of people that fall kind of into this category is that they just won't admit that they're scared. And I will tell you, if they would just stop and they would look at somebody that they trust and they would just openly say, I'm scared. I'm scared of black people. I'm scared of my way of life changing. I'm scared of me maybe losing something. Like I, I, I'm scared, right? If they would do that, then all of a sudden the fear falls away and they start to move towards health and growth and newness, right? But because they won't admit that they're scared of what's not really in the closet, right? Like we were when we were kids, like, oh, I'm scared to look in the closet because there's something in the closet. If I open the closet, then it's going to attack me. But there's nothing in the closet. Just open the door, right? But they won't even open the closet. And so that's your that's to your point about racism, right? Like they don't want you to talk about racism because it opens the closet. And all of a sudden, once you open the closet that you realize that there's nothing in there, then all of a sudden, all of their racist behaviors and tendencies has have absolutely no leg to stand on. And then, then they have to move to repentance. So that fear, I think, really comes from the fact that they don't want to have to admit that there's nothing in the closet. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the closet and their identities are so intertwined with the idea that they are good people and good Christians, they can't hold those ideas in their head that, hey, I can be a God-fearing person or a good Christian or a good mom or dad, but hey, also have some racism in my heart that I need to deal with. And so, I mean, I received, I mean, I remember this lady, I I won't say share her name. She was older. I I gotta believe she was probably 70, 80 years old. She um, confessed how she grew up to her, and she... (laughs) I don't make fun of it, but I mean, she said, hey, you are racist for talking about racism. I was raised to be colorblind, which is a, a what if you want to know the sign of a resistor, it's I'm colorblind. Right. It, that That's it. That's the that's the tell. But she talked about how she grew up until she's older, meaning, you know, so when she grew up with her parents, she said, yeah, my dad was racist against. And then she lists the specific groups her dad was racist against. Then she lists the groups that her mother was racist against. And then she goes on to tell me that, oh, yeah, her mom had girls, black girls, which meant, you know, girls who worked for her and had she had help. And then her dad had black sharecroppers is what it was. And then at the end of this admission, she goes on to say, but they didn't raise me that way. So they were racist, but they raised me to be colorblind. And I think that you should raise your kids that way, too. And I had no response. Like, so you believe that you were raised in this highly racist, actively racist environment where you profited and profited uh, from racism, racist systems and profited from black labor or the lack of uh, black compensation. And that didn't affect you and that you are an example of how I should raise my kids. There is no response. What am I going to say to that? (laughs) I, I think I responded with, uh, you know, the open eye emoji, like, oh, my gosh, like the deer in headlights. So that, that was it. There was no response. So, yeah, that, that's the, the mark of the resistor. They're colorblind, no matter how obviously biased or how discriminatory their history is. They just think that let's not talk about it. Let's just be colorblind. Let's all get together. And they're they're highly offended when I talk about racism when I talk about racism in the uh, lens or context of parenthood, like how, how I have to raise my kids, yeah. deeply offended. Like, I mean, it is like, I think they would fight me if we weren't 
under a global <laughs> pandemic and a quarantine, people will be driving to fight me because of, 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 of this resistance. Uh, okay, so moving on to the referee. So oh. you say that the referee has high racial awareness. So they're very aware that there's differences in race, that racism is, exists, but they have low emotional intelligence. How can those two things exist together? Oh, the referee infuriates me. Um, and I know some, and actually have some, some people who I care about who are referees. Um, so the referee doesn't deny that racism exists and actually they're curious about it. So the referee is learning about racism. The referee is learning about systemic racism. So they'll even say, man, that's crazy that in Tulsa, there was a bombing that, that killed hundreds of black families. That's crazy that all these, so they have an awareness of it. So they, the referee doesn't deny that racism exists but they dismiss it as a priority. So um, higher racial awareness, higher racial literacy, meaning they're aware of systemic issues, but for them, low emotional intelligence means there's no empathy. It doesn't matter to me. So to them, racism, social injustice, white supremacy, it's an academic exercise. Okay, so let's unpack that for a sec example. So the example you gave was uh, the Tulsa massacre um, where Black Wall Street essentially that existed in Tulsa, o Tulsa, Oklahoma was wiped out. Like over 300 homes and businesses just wiped out, burnt to the ground, right? And then the people were murdered. Uh, people were drugged through the street. And, and so the referee looks at that and they say, oh, that was terrible that that happened. But that has absolutely no impact on today. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, so they would decouple themselves from the reality that it has an impact. But here's the deal that makes the referee so infuriating to me is that they have this uncanny ability to hop to the other side. So the other side would be like two sides to hate. It's the most like appalling to me exercise of, well, at that time for, you know, for that culture, they were probably afraid cuz something happened and so they're they're the ones the referee oftentimes states, hey, there's both sides. And so they become historians and uh, statisticians and um, experts enough to find a counterpoint, right? So it's, yeah, you know what? Black on black crime exists. So let's talk about that. What? Or, um, hey, you know, I'm all about, you know, voting rights. But, hey, let's look at this other side, too. Um, I, so I remember at, I was speaking at my, um, church one Sunday, this is after, this was about two years ago. So I remember, um, you know, two years ago we had that, it was a string, it was like three or four weeks of just like, man, it, it was, it was a tough, tough summer of just, uh, you know, law enforcement re related shootings with black males. And it, it was just, it was getting tiring. And so we, we kind of had a service where, you know, I, I went up and I, and I prayed for not only, um, the officers involved, but I prayed for, um, the the young black people who have been killed, Trayvon Martin, et cetera, et cetera. Remember after that, a uh, referee saying, hey, yeah, I mean, there's two sides to that, right? And so if you look at the investigations, like the officer was kind of, and so they always find this, um, this thread, right? And to them, racism is a, um, is, is a debate to, to win or own. And so they have this way of like, Hey, I get your black pain, but it's not mine. Hey, have you ever thought about the other side of that? And so, you know, the, they aren't really seeking equality. They're seeking 
um, this kind of academic, this intellectual exercise. And oftentimes, here's the sign of the referee. The referee doesn't diagnose their own racist quality. So the referee often will point out racism in the rejectors or the resistors. So the referee knows people, white people, historically, that they would call racist. They don't view themselves as racist. They view themselves as almost like students or academicians of uh, sociology. And so racism is something to dissect, but they're so removed from it that they don't know that how they share stereotypical stats and responses, how they're being used to um, to really support white supremacy. So they don't deny racism exists, but they dismiss it as a priority. And they honestly just have decided that it's not worth their attention other than a debate on Facebook or Twitter. Well, what I found fascinating was that their uh, primary barrier, as you stated, is their pride. And you, you can't help but see the Pharisees of the New Testament in the referee. They view themselves in, almost in this kind of Pharisee posture that I've elevated myself above the fray. So I'm able to objectively like look down on, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. I'm, I see Democrats, I see Republicans. So everything to them is this uh, tennis match. And they see the volley back and forth, and they're just the line judge. And they're just calling it like they see it without any acknowledgement that you're actually working for one side and not the other. And so the referee can be infuriating because they think they mean well. They think they're doing good. They see themselves as really a good person, but they're actually they're, they're apathetic uh, and you know they're push and they're not allies to to Black Americans and they're actually being exploited. Um, I think in a way that's very detrimental to social justice. Does the referee have enough of a backbone to have an opinion? You know, I think the referee would say yes. I think a lot of this is self perception. So remember, the low emotional intelligence of a referee means that they actually there is this disconnect. So their ability to feel another person's pain or mm. to have empathy or compassion is very low. And so that's why they're decoupled from that piece. So to, to them, they think they're um, more emotionally involved than what they are. And they think they're probably much more of a friend or ally than what they are. They want to be. They hope to be. Uh, but they're solving really for themselves. Uh, they're not really solving for true, true equality. Mm. Okay, I'm going to move to the center of your graphic. The, the central point is the realist. And this is a person that you say has like medium levels of everything, right? They have medium racial awareness, and they also have kind of a, a medium EQ, and they sit right in the middle of your graphic. Um, why do they sit in the middle of your graphic? Is this like a very common person? Is this like the most common person that you found in all of your research? I'd say you know, the realist is a growing population now. Now that everyone's woke, I think a lot of people are moving to the middle where um, the, the realist, um, they, they vote with silence, right? So they co-sign with their silence. They don't feel comfortable being totally vocal uh, like an activist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But they, are, they aren't comfortable uh, confronting you know, their white friends or, waste, or racist friends. But they have enough diversity in their life via their position in their community, their friend group, their family, et cetera, where for them, it's just not polite to talk about racism. And so they sit in this. Um, and so unlike the referee, where the referee sits between both sides mentally, you think 
the realist sits between both sides, I think, ethically, I think, morally and even spiritually, where um, they're so torn um, to be seen as a good leader that that they become a silent supporter of, of, of injustice. Um, I think the best way to describe the realists is they are anti-difficult. They see how complicated, how hard racism is. They see that, man, it's so entrenched and ingrained into every aspect of our, of our DNA, of our democracy. It's the very oxygen of our country. There's no way we're going to win that battle. But you know what? I feel for black people. But you know what? It's, 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 just, it's just the reality of it, right? So I think the realists pushed for um, more uh, comfort, right? They just want to be neutral. They want to be nice. They want to be seen as, as realist and rational. Um, and oftentimes I encounter them in leadership positions because you're having to manage multiple priorities. So I think the realist um, doesn't realize how much they empower the, re- the rejectors and the resistors. Their silence cosigns racism, yeah. and they don't realize that. I think when you challenge the, the realist, they do start to get an awareness that, yeah, maybe my, my silence isn't the right place to be. But it's a very hard, hard place to be when you have, you know, parents or grandparents who, you know, still f- fly Confederate flags. You know, you have people in your family who are still vocally racist. Um, or maybe you have a preference for a conservative point of view or a political party. And so there's, I think oftentimes they're stuck between the heritage and the traditions of things that have roots in white supremacy, even in churches, and the progressive nature of, wow, like there's a different way to, to do things. So they're, they're a little, um, they're indifferent. So they see that the history is wrong, but they don't see how our future should be changed for the better. And they don't really take ownership of viewing it as their problem to solve. Hmm. You know, when I read this in your graphic, I couldn't help but think to uh, Martin Luther King's the letter from a Birmingham jail to the white pastors in the South at that time, right? right? Yes. And you you note here that they are motivated by comfort because if we or they in that moment would have sided with the the movement of Martin Luther King Jr. and and the blacks of the South at that time, right? It would have cost them something, and that what it would have cost them would have been their comfort. They, they would have had to be become uncomfortable uh, because they would have probably lost friends, even like you said, family members. You know, it would have cost them something, and so rather than like, I think they would have agreed with him. Like, like you said, one-on-one at church, like they agree with you, but they don't want to be vocal about it because it's going to cost them something. Yeah. Uh, the realist wants black people to just be patient. And I think Martin Luther King, uh, is scary because he wrote this letter, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it's so relevant today. We have the white moderate that is silent. And I think the realist is aiming at the wrong target. The aim of the realist is not equality for black people. It's decency. It's hey, let's let's treat black people a little better. Let's make it less bad. And and that's where you see a lot of our diversity inclusion efforts. You see what we do in corporate America, even in churches. A lot of it is more assimilation or inclusion in in predominantly white spaces. It's not true equality. And so the realist. The challenge with the realists is they're not aiming at equality. They're aiming at conformity and patience. And so, I, and here's my challenge to Christian realists, because 
I think overwhelmingly there's a lot of Christian realists. Uh, this is a tough one, but hey, I got to be honest. I think there is no neutral position in Christianity between good and evil, right? And so, I mean, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not for me, you're against me. Now, these aren't the words of a mafia boss. Uh, these aren't. This isn't Mel Gibson from Braveheart. This isn't the line from Last of Mohicans. This is Jesus Christ. If you're not for me, you're against me in this battle between good and evil. I think Jesus wasn't balanced. He was biblical. And if I read the Bible, like there isn't this safe space to be silent. There is no neutral ground to kind of, oh, well, this is this. And so I don't see it in scripture. And so that's my challenge to uh, if you're a realist, if you're not a Christian, hey, throw it out. Just ignore me. But if you're a Christian um, and you're a realist, um, that silent place that you've created is man-made. And I'd say it's it's an idol. It, you're you're idolizing your comfort and convenience over your calling. And I think even though there's so many responses to racism, you know, there's five that I've identified. The choices are very binary when I look at the Bible. It's either you're for evil or for good. There isn't really an in between. And I would say yeah. the realists um, and even probably some of the other personas don't see it as black and white. They they kind of find that gray area. So the realist is the expert to find the gray area where they can sleep at night, but when they wake up, they haven't confronted the problems uh, that they're really called to face. I would put money on this, that the realist will not call racism sin. I would agree with that. I think they would find, I think they would call individual racist acts sin. So Ahmaud Arbery, which was kind of, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd were the like, the uh, turning points, right? They were the crucible moments where like racism became like real and woke and it woke up America. So they would say, hey, that was wrong, but they would not acknowledge that, hey, like in in uh, medical, in residential, in political, in economic, in education, they they won't they would deny that some of those gaps are larger problems for the, for for them to solve. So they would they would acknowledge that racist acts happen but they would not acknowledge that racist systems are real and that Jesus, he dismantled not only individual sins, he dismantled institutional sins. And he did not come just to save people individually. He came to save us collectively as a body. And that's where the realist falls short. And that's where I spend time writing and talking to realists because I think they have access to the other personas in a way that is powerful. And I think if the realists start to rise up and own their calling, I think they could be powerful advocates. Hmm, that's good, man. All right. So then the last one in your chart, and you know, I think we all want to be perceived as this person, right? As your white friends, we want to be perceived as your per- this person uh, is the anti-racist. And that seems so simple, right? Like it seems like there should only be two people in your chart, right? The racist and the anti-racist. But unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. So tell me about the anti-racist. Well, I would I'll address this to your point. And I didn't say this bluntly in my writing. I'm working up my way to that. I would say you're right. I think, like I said, I think the responses to racism are multiple. I think the choices are binary. So I think even though you have five responses, six, whatever, the choice is binary. It's good, evil, anti-racist, racist. So and a lot of people disagree with me. So I've already gotten like comments (laughs) like uh, disagreeing with that whole four. But 
And I'm not judging. So here's the caveat too. I'm not judging or um, applying value to your journeys. I'm just sharing my observations. And so this is not a this is not a exhibit A in the courtroom at your individual hearing. This is me after reading, writing, observing, mm-hmm. educating myself patterns that I've seen. So I say that now. I think the anti-racist is what we all um, aspire to be. I think the difference. The mark of an anti-racist. So anti-racist, to refresh, has high racial awareness. Mm -hmm. So they've educated themselves on a racial literacy to know about systemic racism, know about white supremacy. They might even be as, you know, woke to know about redlining and gentrification and know about the, uh, you know, preschool to prison pipeline and know about the prison industrial complex. They might know about, you know, the 13th Amendment and legalized slavery. They might know about all these things that are going on behind the scenes to give uh, power, to give oxygen, and to give merit to white supremacy. So high racial awareness, but also high emotional intelligence. And I think their high emotional intelligence has translated into compassion. You know, compassion is a simple word. It means to suffer together. It's compassion. It's loving kindness. It's the ability to put someone else's advantage over mine. And I think the anti-racist, whether they're believers or not, has uh, adopted racism as their problem. Not a black problem. It's a white problem uh, to solve. And they know that inaction isn't an option. And so even though they're clumsy, they're nervous, they might get it wrong, they're committed to equality as the end goal. It's not making it better for black people. It's not, hey, black people should have a little more decency, true equality. So they're advocating um, in the past. Here's the mark of an anti-racist. So if if you're wondering, am I anti-racist? Point blank. Last 30 days, have you lifted a vote, a voice, a finger, a check, a seat, a job to help someone that doesn't look like you? If yes, you are on the path to anti-racism. If not, for all the post- all the theological debates, all the racial statistics, all the bickering on Facebook, all the tweets, all the links to weird videos. It doesn't matter. It's all about behavior. And so the, what separates the anti-racists is that that compassion translates to action. They're doing something right. And so they are. And now, you know, the barriers inexperienced. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, I don't know what to do, but I'm so inspired. And people have been sharing with me for the past two weeks what they're doing. I mean, it's and it's funny. It's the same gifts that you would use for any other problem. So like, hey, when COVID hit, I can't tell you how many businesses launched, um, you know, special projects and programs. Nonprofits popped up overnight uh, for people who were in government, people who were in child care, people who were in health care, people who made sandwiches, pe- taco trucks. I mean, it didn't matter. Like it was as unique and diverse as the gifts we were given. Like people use what they did reflexively to help other people. That's the mark of an anti-racist. They're not trying to be Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson. They're not trying to be Adrian Parker or Daryl Coffey. They're using what they do to help someone else. And I think they know enough, and a lot of it's sparked by proximity to people of color and black people. Like you, you have actual authentic relationships with black people, and you know that um, they're unique individuals. And so you're okay, like, getting clumsy and like working through um, a, 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 a ton of this, right? So the mark of the anti-racist is the ability to work to further the agenda of equality 
And here's the deal. You don't have to be completely anti-racist to be an anti-racist. And so, like, I use the example all the time of, like, I want to be anti-sexism. I have a daughter. I have a wife. Of course, I want to be anti-sexism as a leader in business. I want to be anti-sexism as a leader in my community. Do I get it right all the time? No. Are there times I'm like, hey, I need feedback. Hey, here's the article. Does this happen at our company? Hey, was that meeting? Or, hey, I heard this happen. Like, I'm always learning about that because as a male, I don't have that natural experience. And I've often, even I'm a black male in corporate America, oftentimes just simply being a male gives me access to uh, experience or mentorship or sponsorship that a female executive won't have. And I've even seen examples of myself where I've benefited from being a male uh, in a way that closed the door for a female. So I've seen that. And I've, you know, you know, I have examples of that. Where I'm like, oh, I, I didn't do the right. And we, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. I haven't always uh, been as anti-sexist as I should be. So I'm not perfect at it, but I'm moving that way. And so I think anti-racism is the same journey where you don't have to be have a PhD in African-American studies from Princeton. You start where you are. And I think the anti-racist journey is one that we all need to take. But I would absolutely agree with you that it's binary. You're the anti-racist or you're not. Once you're anti-racist, it's a journey. But if you're using excuses um, to thwart your progress because of fear or pride or denial, to me, that's where I would question where your heart is. Man, the... Question I was going to ask you, you kind of answered already, but you know, it was based on that, that barrier is inexperienced for the anti-racist. So for all of your friends who ain't black, what can we do better? (laughs) (laughs) It's good. You know, I think it's a threefold to me to, to simplify it. Um, on the Gary V podcast, you know, I, I use the example of when I sprained my ankle. So I severely sprained my, uh, right ankle. And, you know, I went to a doctor, uh, to get, you know, uh, painkillers cause it hurt <laughs> and I got crutches cause I couldn't walk fast forward, you know, three months later. Well, I could walk and I wasn't in pain, but I couldn't run. My ankle was still swole and like, I wasn't mobile. And so I, I go, to, I went to a sports doctor and he's like, yeah, I mean, pretty much you aim at the wrong target. Are you, you wanted to not have pain and you wanted to, to have minimal discomfort. So you got that. But what you didn't say is, hey, I want to be able to run and work out again. And he said, to run and work out again, you got to, I had to do three things. A, I had to submit to the process. I had to have two expert education, right? I had to go to a a specialist who could work me out, et cetera. And then three, I had to, um, so I had to, I had to submit, get, submit, educate, and then commit to the long term. And I think that's the thing that every anti-racist um, has to do is that, you know, it's submitting. Submitting means going under a mission. So if the mission is anti-racism, then, you know, every day, every week you wake up, it's just a little step further. It's like, hey, how can I expand my table, use my privilege to help someone? Who can I mentor? Who can I help out? Whether it's, it's you know, use your labor, your influence, your finances, your experience to help someone else with no expectation of return. Not a social media post. Don't post it. Don't talk about it. Just do it, right? And repeat. It's simple. I mean, it's it's the gospel, pretty much. You know, I'm basically just summarizing the Bible, right? It's like, yeah, just like keep doing that, right? Find someone and love them. And you know what? Even if you don't agree with them, 
like do it anyway. In fact, because you disagree with them, you should probably do it anyway. So it's like you keep doing that, but then you educate yourself. Like you continue to learn forward, you listen, and then you commit to the long term. All right. And commit to long term means I confront it in my family, my business and, and in my community. So in your families, all of it. Yeah. yeah so let's repeat that. So submit. Uh-huh. Right. Like I've got to submit myself to this thing. Yep. I've got to continually educate myself. Right. Yeah. And then I have to commit to make sure that I stick with it, that I don't just let it fall off my radar in a couple of weeks when it's not on trend anymore and I move back into my comfortable space. Right. Like I have to yeah. make this part of my life. I was speaking to someone. This would be a good example uh, that you could really identify with is my journey to uh, the work that we've done in Uganda. Yeah. Right. And so for you, as you don't know, you know I've done gone to Uganda a couple of times with with Daryl, with Sports Outreach Institute. And, you know, Daryl was the founder of a micro loan organization there. And my wife and I regularly, um, you know, we give our time and give our effort. but We also give our finances. But I remember in 2008 when I first heard about so, and Daryl has been involved forever. So like Daryl was already doing stuff long before it got on my radar. I remember in 2008, though, I, for whatever reason, I came across stories of some of the tragedies going on in Eastern Africa. Yeah. So I went from unaware to aware. I mean, I cried like for a day mm-hmm. just reading these stories. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, something hit me reading the stories of what was, and it was specific to the women in Eastern Africa and the yeah. stories of abuse and torture. And I mean, some of these stories are the most horrible things I've ever read in my life. And knowing that that was happening to someone and knowing that that could be like my mom or my sister, et cetera, it, it, it broke my heart that that could be happening in the same world where I'm sitting here comfortably, you yeah. know, working on a PowerPoint. Like, how was that even possible? So I, I went from um, not resistant, but unaware, apathetic. Yeah, it's a problem to an awareness of it. But that time, I mean, I was in a business. I didn't have any money. So I remember the first thing I did, I shared this with a group last week. I wrote a poem and like sent it to a nonprofit. Like that's all I could do. Like, and it sounds like clumsy. Like, so you you read about the atrocities in Africa and inspired you to write a poem, and then you sent it to a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds awkward and like really goofy. That's all I could think of, right? But fast forward twelve years later, right, and you've gone from hey, how can I uh, get involved? I educated myself, so I read and studied. Mm-hmm. I read uh, there's movies, there's great books. Right. Uh, me and Daryl. So Daryl was already doing stuff. I linked up with you to go and visit. Yeah. Right. So I submitted to the mission. Right. Where you're going over and, you know, you're flying economy. and You're just there and you're in the bushes and I'm just there just to be a part of the mission. I don't care what they ask me to do. I'm doing it. Yeah. I, I educated myself. Right. And then but I also committed to the long term, whether it's financially whether it's uh, serving on the bar, server on the board for a year. I mean, I found all these ways to get involved and like I'm clumsy with it. I don't get it right, but I'm keep moving forward. So I think the call to be anti-racist is the same thing. When you go from the clumsy poem that I don't know, I, I just wrote a poem. I don't know why, whatever, to now like I'm in, like I'm all in, right? I'm, I'm there. Yeah. And so I think yeah. we all have that journey. And I would challenge uh, not only, especially if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, I don't think we really have a, I think you always have an option. You always have a choice, but mm-hmm. I don't think we get, I think it really is a very, very strong um, message when I look at the Bible in terms of uh, the recon, the minister, ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. 
I think we're debating about stuff that was never meant to be debated. And I yeah. think the time we're spending talking about racial justice and laws and policies and prove white supremacy, I think every ounce of energy spent arguing over it yeah. is taken away from the real focus of dismantling it. And so I would challenge any Christian where, man, if, if, if we're still debating a month from now, shame on you, bud. Shame on you. Yeah. Let's, let's get it done and move on. Um, yeah, three years ago, man, we were baptizing people in an inflatable pool in northern Uganda. Can you believe that? Yeah, I don't believe in coincidence, but I, so I do think that's a great example. If you take race out of it and look at just the journey you take from being unaware, apathetic, unaffected, to being empathetic, compassionate, literate, it's the journey we do in our lives from a bachelor who doesn't care about anything to a father of kids. I mean... We take that journey from an unaware, you know, um, just silly guy sending off napalm emails, getting people fired at work, thinking that work is all about himself to serving a team. I mean, it's what we do. And so racism is the only area where I think we've been so resistant for so many reasons. And so it's, it's time for us to face it. Um, so along those lines, we don't want to end this episode without educating ourselves. So you've got some book recommendations for us, uh, for white folks, for black folks, for everybody. What do you got? I'll give you a couple that I think are foundational. Uh, one is how to be an anti-racist, since I do, <laughs> I do believe that that is the calling. I, yeah. think, I think if we contextualize how to be an anti-racist, if we wrote it 2,000 years ago, it would simply say, love your neighbor. Like it's yeah. it's a scripture, so yeah. this is just a contextualization of what we're called to do. Uh, but it's by Ibram Kende. He went to Florida and M. He's a family rattler, but it's a great book about literally how to be anti-racist. How do we start to um, take the stigma away from the term racism and start to like acknowledge where we're mm. racist, our own racism, even as um, our own biases, our own prejudice. Isn't even as a man of color, I have biases and, and prejudices, yeah. et cetera. So how to be a ra- how to be an anti-racist, I think, is, is is foundational. I would say this: a lot of people talk about white fragility. I have that one as well. That's a strong one. Uh, so you want to talk about race was probably one of the first books I read that I think did a very uh, foundational job of addressing racism. Um, it's it's a really great book. A lot of people have read it. All these books are on the New York Times bestseller list because we're all trying to get woke. Uh, so, but one off the beaten path. I'd say for um, especially Christians, there's a book called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson. And it's a study of the evangelical religion and the problem of race in America. I'd say for a lot, because a lot of the books, Democracy in Black, White Fragility, a lot of them um, deal with racism uh, at the national, local level. I think not very many books deal with uh, systemic racism and white supremacy and the origins of it in Christianity in America. And I think that's so intertwined. That's a whole other um, that's a whole other conversation. But this is one of the first books that talks about and breaks down how largely white evangelicals view black Americans. It ain't positive, And how that view taints our progress and impedes wow. the conversations. And so it's a strong book. Um, and it's written by researchers. So it's all stats. So if you're the referee or the uh, resistor and you need stats, this is all the stats you need uh, that show that gap and also show the roots 
of how racism has infected our, our American church and how we have some, you know, we have some reconciliation to do in our own walls. Man, thank you for that. That's so good. We'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes um, so people can pick those up. Man, you know, this is such a good, uh, timely conversation. I think, you know, overall, I've enjoyed the opportunity to learn more about myself, challenge uh, myself. I remember talking to my dad about Father's Day, um, just about everything that's going on. And I remember him sharing that, like, we don't talk about this. As black men, we don't talk about it. His father didn't talk about it. My mom's father didn't talk about it. Um, these men went to their graves, never confronting racism in their lives. And they felt it so much more than, than I have directly. And I think um, as I think about that heritage and that legacy that they they overcame hate by just focusing on love. And they did it with their families, but they never confronted racism directly because for a black man, I mean, more than 60 years ago, if you confronted racism directly, it, it could cost you your life. And I think now we have a responsibility. So I think the invitation, I would end with this invitation, is the world we have now the one you want to relay to your children? Are the problems or the social injustice that we face today what you want to be inherited by your children? If you can say that is, that is not the reality that you want to have, I think we all have a job to do. And I think it starts, so for me, that's been my, um, call it battle cry. It hasn't been just because I want to be seen or heard. Trust me, there is no incentive to talking about racism. My job, my job has really nothing to do with it. Like, it, it, so, like, I mean, I, so I'm in a position where I have an obligation and have opportunity, and I appreciate it. So I, I don't discount that. But this, this isn't, this isn't giving me any, any like kudos or, or points on, like, you know, this isn't helping me. And, and I mean, I, I think, extra work. yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's extra work. And I mean, I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but I'd say in many ways, it's probably hurting me uh, to, to be quite candid. But I'd say what I'm motivated by is the fact that Caleb, Chloe and Chandler shouldn't have to jump the same hurdles I have. And so that, for me, that that's the same thing. And so I hope, you know, even if, you know, you're a white parent listening and you have white kids, I mean, I think there are hurdles they will face um, that are the inverse. Right. And I think if you're able to you know, join me on that journey to saying, what does true equality look like? Mm-hmm. Let's make this better for our kids. Then that's the invitation to be an anti-racist. Man, that's so good. Thank you. Man, anytime, dude. Whew. It's a beast. Hey, thanks for the questions. I think you've challenged me to examine and kind of introspectively look at myself. But I hope this was beneficial uh, to our listeners. Like I said, we'll, we'll post some links and resources as well. Give us feedback. Disagree, agree. Like I said, I, I'm responsible for my words. I don't take responsibility for your response to them. So if, if you're uh, mad or maybe angry, hey, you know what? I'm not saying you don't email me, but, you know, maybe pray about it. Deal with deal with you and then let's engage. It's OK. We're going to only have three listeners for the rest of the show's <laughs> life. I'm great with that. I love it. I love it, man. This has been a great conversation, dude. All right, man. Until episode nine, when we lose more friends. Hey, guys, this is DC. And this was the Unfollow podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend.